Tonight we want to continue a study that we began last Sunday night. I thought since this is a unique and different situation that we ought to use it as effectively as we can. And so I began a series last Sunday night on Bible authority. And we're going to continue that on Sunday nights, Lord willing, for the next few weeks because it looks like we may be in this sort of an arrangement for a while. And so Sunday nights we want to devote our time to studying and being reminded about Bible authority. You know, all of us make determinations about the kind of things that are right, proper, that we, that we approve of. For instance, uh, when I go to a restaurant, of course, we haven't been going to restaurants much lately, but if you, when, when you can remember that and when we get back to doing that again, uh, what kind of things do you use to determine if a restaurant is proper, is, it's, it's appropriate, it's the kind of restaurant you think it should be? Well, I'm sure you're going to think about uh, the service, if it's friendly and prompt. You're going to think about cleanliness for sure, especially that's going to be emphasized in our minds at this particular time. Is it a clean place? Uh, certainly you're going to ask, is the food good? So you have certain, you have certain requirements that you judge as, is this a decent, reasonable restaurant? Would I come back here? Would I want to be involved with that restaurant in the future? We have those kind of determinations in all things. When it comes to religion, we need to have certain things that we use to determine, is this right? Is this appropriate? Is this church the kind of church that it ought to be? And when you boil that all down, that comes to the question of Bible authority. How well do they adhere to the things that the Bible says we ought to be doing? Are they following the scriptures? Are they applying authority? Are they following the pattern? Uh, those are very important questions. And we really think that authority in religion is ultimately important. In our study last week, we talked about where we get our Bible authority. Uh, we talked last week about the fact that it is not established by human sources. It's certainly not about ourselves, what we think. Our personal opinions, our likes and dislikes, our preferences, it's not about us. But we also pointed out last week that it's not about other men either. Uh, it's, it's not about what your preacher says. Hopefully your preacher is preaching the word, but I'm sad to say that there are plenty of preachers in the world who are not. And so you can't just say, well, my preacher says so and therefore we do it. That is not a reasonable source of authority. It doesn't come from elders, from those who oversee local congregations. From time to time we hear people say, I don't approve what the elders do, but that's their choice, that's their decision, that's on them. No, it's really not. Because if we're following men who are not adhering to the Bible pattern, that's just wrong. It's not the majority. We know that all through the history of God's dealings with mankind, some have made the mistake of thinking that if the majority goes for it, it's okay. That's definitely not the right source of authority. We know that our authority must come from God. We are absolutely confident that He speaks to us through His inspired Word. Now, we're not engaging in a study of Bible inspiration at this point. We have done that before, and we think there's tremendous, strong evidence that the Bible is a unique book in the world. It is a book inspired by God in heaven, that he has told us what he wants us to do. He's told us exactly what he wants us to do. We believe that God speaks to us through the inspired word. 
And specifically for today, living in this last dispensation of time, in this Christian era, in this time we know that he speaks to us through the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Now the Old Testament, as we said last week, very valuable, lots of great information, important, important truths that are contained in the Old Testament. But when we're looking for our law to live by today, we go to the New Testament. And we talked about that in our lesson last week. So that's where we got in our study last week. Now we want to add to that. And so again, uh, our two main points last week, Bible authority is not established through human sources. Our authority must come from God. And we look to the New Testament well, how do we go to the New Testament then and decide what God wants us to do? How, how are we authorized to act? How, how are we told how to worship and serve and so forth? Well, there are three principal areas or three principal methods, I guess I should say, through which God authorizes us. The first is the easiest. When we have a direct command or statement, when the Bible just simply says so, when in the New Testament we read that we're to do this or not do that, when God says it, and if we fear God, then that settles it. We do what God says we're supposed to do. In John chapter 14, beginning verse 15, Jesus said, you remember this passage well, if you love me, keep my commandments. Notice, there's an emphasis on commandments. Later in verse 21, Jesus said, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. But again, notice the emphasis on commandment keeping. For some reason in our world today, people sort of feel like that's a, a negative concept. Oh, commandments, do and don't do, thou shalt not. And people tend to cast off or look down upon that sort of thing, but Jesus here linked it perfectly. If you love me, keep my commandments. Uh, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. I don't know how you could make that any plainer. If the scripture says do it, we are to do it. In Matthew chapter 28, in the famous Great Commission, Jesus said in Matthew 28, beginning verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Notice, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have, what, commanded you. So for anybody who thinks that commandment keeping is a problem or that the, that the urging of commandment keeping, the teaching and the requiring of commandment keeping, anybody who has a problem with that has a problem with Jesus himself because he certainly taught the importance of keeping the commands. If the Bible says so, if God's word instructs us thus, we must do it. Every once in a while we hear somebody who complains that, well, we should do what Jesus taught. If you find it in your red letter edition of the Bible, if you find the very words of Jesus that he said do it, then you ought to do it. But other than that, it's just sort of potluck. You can do whatever you want. Especially they would like to say that, well, <clears throat> if the Apostle Paul taught it, it's not as authoritative as Jesus, if the Apostle Peter taught it, or if the Apostle John taught it, or if any of the other inspired New Testament writers said it, if it's not in the red letters, if it was one of those other writers, you really don't have to pay that much attention to it. But we know that Paul said here in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, 
Let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Notice, they are the commandments of the Lord. So what Paul and the other inspired writers taught is also authoritative to us. And again, I would say that this is the simplest, most direct, easiest to understand method by which we obtain Bible authority, by direct command or statement. We understand that the Scripture also authorizes us by way of approved example. In other words, if we can find inspired men who did a thing in a certain way, then we can imitate their example. We can do what they did. Their example sets a pattern. It's authoritative for us if we have an example. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Paul said, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. Be ye followers of me. Now notice, he, he put a caveat on that even as I also am of Christ. So follow me as I follow Christ. But Paul was saying, you can follow my example. And from that, we would argue that apostolic example, approved example in the New Testament is authoritative. In Philippians 3, verse 17, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. Be followers of the inspired apostles. Approved example. And then I think probably the best one along these lines is Philippians 4, verse 9. You might want to note this. If anybody ever challenges you as to the appropriateness of using Bible-approved example for authority, Philippians 4, verse 9 is probably the best verse. Paul says, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Again, I think that's a a very plain, straightforward uh, instruction concerning example. Now, you may have noticed that we said it must be an approved example. Because not every example in the Bible is a proper one. Not even every example of the inspired men of the Bible is a proper example. And to illustrate that, I remind you of Galatians chapter 2, beginning verse 11. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11... Paul is the author, and he says, When Peter was come to Antioch, I, Paul, withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, and the text goes on. Now, the reason I point this out is, here's Peter. Now, he's an apostle. But what he did here in Antioch was not right. And Paul, he says, withstood him to the face. Notice, I withstood him to the face. Why? Because he was to be blamed. He was wrong. Peter was wrong. And the text shows us that he was wrong. Now, here's an example. This is an example, but it's not an authorized example. Because it's not approved. And so uh, this would be our point here. It must be an approved example in order to be authoritative. Finally, we said there were three methods by which we derive authority from the Scriptures. Commander example, approved example, 
but also necessary inference. Now, necessary inference, I think most of us are familiar with that terminology, but I would have to argue that the people of the world probably are not. So let's make sure we have it defined. To infer something, according to the dictionary, means to derive by reasoning, conclude or judge from premises or evidence. Okay, so that means I take, I take into consideration the information that is provided, and then I draw a conclusion from it. We do that all the time uh, in, in day-to-day affairs. For instance, if, if Cindy says to me, the trash can is full of trash. Okay, great. What, so what? I mean, no, she means something by that, doesn't she? So I infer from that, she means, why don't you take that out? Why don't you empty the trash can? It's full of trash. And so to infer, she implies by saying the trash can is full, and I infer from that that she wants me to act upon it. She wants me to do something. That's the idea of inference. Uh, drawing conclusion from available information or evidence. Now, notice that it must be a necessary inference. And we understand the word necessary. It means that which cannot be dispensed with. And so, when we're talking about necessary inference, we're talking about that which is absolutely essential, unavoidable, which cannot be denied, a conclusion drawn from the available information that is absolutely required or necessary. Necessary inference. All right. The classic case of necessary inference. We can look to others, but here's the one I I hope you will remember. And again, as you have an opportunity to talk with others, and maybe as you're discussing this very matter of Bible authority, Hebrews 10 verse 25 is probably the best place to go to show that necessary inference authorizes You know Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so we are to assemble. In fact, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, think about that for a minute. If you're going to have an assembly, then that necessitates a place to assemble, right? How do we have authority for a church building such as this one? How is that authorized? There's no place in the scripture where we have a command that says you should, you must have a building to meet in. There's no command or statement. There's actually not even an example of that sort of thing. Now we know that Christians met in, met in various places, uh, but, but there's no place where we have a specific example of one particular place of worship. But we believe that by commanding us to assemble, that therefore it authorizes the providing of a place to assemble. It could be a rented facility. Uh, It could be a a, a facility owned and maintained by the church for such purposes. But necessary inference says if we must assemble, there must be a place for assembling. All right. So those are the three methods by which we go to the Scriptures, study the Scriptures, and derive from that what God wants us to do. The easiest direct command uh, or statement. If it just says do it or don't do it, then that's, that's all we need. We act upon that. When we have an, a, an approved example in the New Testament, 
We use that as authoritative. That's, that's a pattern for us to follow. And then when a situation is such that there is a something implied and we draw a necessary inference from it, that is also authoritative. Let's use the Lord's Supper as an example of applying all three of those methods to understand what God wants us to do in regards to observing the Lord's Supper. First of all, a command tells us exactly what to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning verse 23, Paul says, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Did you notice a couple of key phrases there? This do. This do ye. Do this. And so in regards to partaking of the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, we're doing that because Jesus said to do so. It's a command. It's a direct command from the Lord. So in the, in the observance of the Lord's Supper, we do it and we do what we do. We specifically use the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine because Jesus said so. He commanded us to do it. But that doesn't answer all the questions. An example tells us when we are to do it. So Jesus said what to do, but when? Uh, How would we know? When should we do this? Should we do it on Tuesday? Should we do it on Friday night? When should we partake of the Lord's Supper? Well, here we get the information from an approved example. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread... Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Uh, This breaking of bread, as we understand, is an expression that was used to describe the Lord's Supper in in certain contexts, as it is here. They came together. Notice they came together to break bread. They came together for this purpose uh, of observing the Lord's Supper. Well, when did they do that? Right here, on the first day of the week. They came together to break bread. Now, were they right about that? Was this appropriate? Was it an approved example? Right here. Paul was with them in the doing of that. That makes it an approved example. Do you see that? And so we know what we're supposed to do because Jesus actually told us we know when to do it because we have an approved example. We do it on Sunday. We do it on the first day of the week. All right. We still don't have all the information yet, though. Something's still needed. So we know what to do. We know we should do it on the first day of the week. But what first day of the week? You know, every week has a first day. Every week has a Sunday. How often? The question is, how often? What is the frequency of the observance? Now, you may be aware of the fact that there are folks in the religious world who do it at all different kinds of frequencies. Some do it maybe once a month, once a quarter, twice a year, and so forth. And and so you're left to, to, uh, I I guess, believe that they think it's just arbitrary, that you can do it as frequently as you want or as infrequently as you want. But we believe we actually have authority in this matter. 
And it comes from a consideration of necessary inference. The frequency is told. Notice, they came together upon the first day of the week. As we said earlier, every week has a first day. This one's not specified. I didn't say it was the first Sunday of the third month. It didn't say it was the second Sunday after the full moon in April. It didn't specify a Sunday. It just says it was the first day of the week. And since it is not specified, then we would conclude that this must have been something they did every week. There's a great parallel to this in the Old Testament. Again, here's here's the use of the Old Testament that helps us understand something about what we're supposed to be doing today. In Exodus 20, verse 8, when Paul was giving the Ten Commandments, when Moses, I said when Paul, Paul didn't give the Ten Commandments, Moses gave the Ten Commandments. When Moses was given the Ten Commandments, the fourth one was, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So if you were an Israelite back in those times and you were obligated to keep the law of Moses, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Which Sabbath day? Which one? The first one of the month? Uh, Two or three every year? No. The right conclusion, and we know that the, the, the Israelites followed this, the right conclusion was every time the Sabbath day comes around, you keep it holy. So nobody, I don't think anybody would argue that that was required of the Israelites under the law of Moses Every Sabbath day, keep it holy. because Notice it didn't specify which one. It just said keep the Sabbath day holy. Therefore, they understood every Sabbath day was to be kept holy. That's the same reasoning we use here about the first day of the week. Since no specific one is mentioned, we are left to conclude a necessary inference is that we should observe the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Do you see that? You see how that kind of reasoning is essential. All three methods are required to get the full picture of what God wants us to be doing in regards to the Lord's Supper. Command, example, necessary inference. All right. Now, again, I think all of us as Christians ought to be prepared to make those kinds of arguments and give that sort of explanation when people question us. It's really important about Bible authority. I want you to know, though, that Bible authority, especially in regards to approved example and necessary inference, Bible authority has been under attack. Let me read you a quote from, these are from some members of the Church of Christ, very liberal in their outlook, but notice what they say. Here's one fellow that says, To my mind, it is not correct to say that the examples of inspired men represent divine instruction. Neither the Christ nor the Holy Spirit have had speech problems when they wanted to give specific instruction, they gave it. It is, it is presumptuous to assume examples as commands. You get that? He's saying we can't, we, we, he's throwing out approved example. He does not like that. And then also about necessary inference. Here's a quote from another fellow. He says this necessary inference thing is one that has gotten us into big trouble throughout the years. There's no example of any man of there's no example of any man of God in the Old or New Testament ever reasoning by necessary inference. Really? You really think that's so? There's no case of necessary inference in the Scripture. I think that there is, and let's do one more exercise before we conclude our study tonight. Let's go to Acts chapter 15, and in Acts chapter 15, again, I think we can see 
all three methods of establishing authority being used. You may remember that in Acts chapter 15, there was a big, big controversy uh, in the early church about the matter of circumcision. Uh, should Gentile converts specifically, they were arguing about the Gentile converts, should the Gentile converts who were, who were obeying the gospel, should they be required to be circumcised? This was a big issue. It's not an issue in our time, obviously, but it was a huge issue in the first century church. And so, uh, so they got together in Acts chapter 15. They came to the city of Jerusalem. And by the way, I want to point out to you, we've studied about this Acts 15 conference before. This was not a decision-making conference. It wasn't that they, they had the first church convention and they came together and took a vote. It wasn't that at all. This matter was already established. They just needed to make sure everybody understood what God was instructing about it. It wasn't that they were making a decision or taking a vote. This was well established already and they just needed to get people to get on board and, uh, and acknowledge what God had authorized in regards to circumcision. Let's, let's see how they did that. In Acts chapter 15, beginning verse 7. When there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now, you know what Peter's talking about there, don't you? You know that he's talking about the instance recorded in Acts 10, when he was directed by God to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles as Peter was preaching to them and they were baptized. It was clear that the Gentiles were to be brought into the kingdom. In fact, in Acts chapter 10 at verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said of a truth, notice, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted. So Peter took all of the information that was available and he drew a conclusion. And I believe that we would say in this that he was practicing necessary inference. Based upon everything that was happening, based upon the vision that he himself had received, based upon the Holy Spirit being poured out on Cornelius and his household while Peter was preaching to them. All these things happening led him to the inescapable conclusion, I perceive. God is no respected person. Peter said, I concluded, I, I necessarily inferred from all of this information that the gospel should go to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles should be invited, brought into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter used necessary inference. But that wasn't all. In that same chapter of Acts 15, verse 12, Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among them or wrought among the Gentiles by them. So now, after Peter has said, my, my necessary inference, my conclusion based upon the evidence is the Gentiles should be brought in. Then Barnabas and Paul get up, and they talk about, notice, they were declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. In other words, here, we, we've gone among these Gentiles. We've been preaching to them. And as we've been preaching... 
we have been empowered by God's Holy Spirit to work miracles among them. Now, think about that for a minute. I believe that what Paul was saying there, what Paul and Barnabas were saying is there's, this, this is clearly approved of God. We have an approved example. This is an approved thing. God wouldn't be working miracles among them if it was not so that they ought to be taught, baptized, brought into the kingdom. Barnabas and Paul used approved example. And then finally, still in Acts 15 at verse 13, James gets up and says, after they had kept, uh, held their peace, James answered and said, Men and brethren, hearken to me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to, to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble them not which among the Gentiles are turned to God. What did James appeal to? Notice, to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. And then he goes on uh, to reference. He's actually quoting somewhat from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. I would argue that what James is doing there is an appeal to a direct command, a statement of prophetic scripture, that, and, and therefore the case was established. So, again, I think it's interesting that although there are men who are especially attacking the idea of using approved example or necessary inference to get authority for our actions today. It's clear that in that meeting at, in Jerusalem, recorded for us in Acts 15, all three methods were used. So again, I want all of us to be really familiar with these methodologies. I think we are. Uh, we refer to it very often. But in our world, is more needed than ever to make an emphasis upon Bible authority. So again, remember the three methods, direct command or example, approved, excuse me, direct command or statement, approved, with emphasis on approved, example, and necessary inference. There can be a quiz on this stuff. I'm only teasing, but we should know it, and we should know it well, the three ways by which God authorizes us to act.